The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. But I think especially at this time, you know, looking at some of the scary macro drivers around supply chain and climate change and some of the other issues that we're facing and looking at human health and how people need to eat, I just feel like we can have a big impact on that, on how we grow our food and what food we grow and what food people eat. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 5. Welcome back. I'm your host. If this is your first time listening, then I'm most definitely rolling out the welcome mat for you. You are in the right place. If you're looking for a show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world, we include personalities that are making their mark and have been supportive of the industry for years, if not decades. And that's definitely the case with this week's episode. Before we get to that, in case you missed last week's episode, we spoke with John Purcell, the CEO of Unfold, back on the show for round two. He came back to discuss the progress he's made helping improve efficiencies within indoor ag and their desire to reach out beyond leafy greens, tomatoes, and cucumbers to other crops. And he talked about the recent launch of their innovation partner program, so make sure you check that out if you haven't done so already. This week, we speak to Vani Estes. Vani was at Indoor AgCon as well. We did not get to connect there, but as a follow-up, actually, John is the one now that I think about it that connected us. So thank you again to John Purcell. She's the VP of Innovation at the Produce Marketing Association, and she's driven by a passion for agriculture, sustainability, and wanting to make an impact on serious issues such as climate change and broken supply chains. In this episode, we engage in a rich discussion on plant pathology, educating consumers on vertical farming, and promoting diversity in the ag tech industry. She shares the lessons she's learned from working at big corporations like Monsanto, Syngenta, and DuPont, and talks about her mission to educate others in the produce industry. So really enjoyed our conversation, really insightful, and a lot of takeaways that I think you'll appreciate. I don't usually mention my other show, but I started the podcasting journey with my first show in 2014 called Podcast Junkies. So I thought I'd 
make a mention here if you're interested in hearing stories from other podcasters. I've been doing it since 2014, and I'm closing in on episode 300. Really fascinating, wide-ranging conversations about the world of podcasting. So check that out if you have an interest in that. Podcast Junkies on your favorite podcast app. This episode is also brought to you by the Vertical Farming Weekly Newsletter. Each week, our team member Noah brings you the latest and greatest in the world of vertical farming. If you have not signed up already, then you can actually just pause this and do that now. Go to verticalfarmingweekly.com. Looking forward to your feedback once you've had a chance to check it out. Happy to read out a new review that came in from Ramon95494. Ramon says, I began listening to Vertical Farming Podcast at the start of April 2022, and I've been listening to a few episodes every week ever since. I really enjoyed the wide variety of guests Terry brings on from well-established players to burgeoning startups. It's always great to get insights into an industry which can sometimes feel pretty siloed. I also particularly enjoy the episode recaps and tweetable quotes for each episode as they make it much easier to share interviews with my friends and co-workers. Ramon, thank you so much for that beautifully uh, worded review. I really, really appreciate when folks take the time to do that. And as promised, if you are loving this episode or past episodes and getting value from it, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. And as I just demonstrated, I'd be more than happy to read it out on a future episode. Okay, enough of me, more of Vani. Let's get started with this interview. Thanks. So Vani Estes, Vice President of Innovation at the International Fresh Produce Association. Thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. I'm really happy to be here. Excited for the conversation. Where's home for you? I'm in Menlo Park, California. So I'm right in between Meta or Facebook and uh, Stanford. Okay. How long have you been there? 13 years. For folks who would be considering a move out there, what, what advice would you give them? <laughs> Bring your checkbook. <laughs> It's super expensive, but you know, I, I was hiking yesterday and I was up above and looking down into the valley and I took this picture and it's like, you know, people say lots of negative things about Silicon Valley, but you're standing up there. There's like wildflowers everywhere. And you know, you can see the Stanford tower and it's just beautiful. It's a lovely place to live for lots of reasons. And where were you before that? I was in Wilmington, Delaware. Mm, so across on the other side of the country. <laughs> yeah, I've lived most of my adult life in California, and I lived most of my growing up years in the West. So I've done a, a few stints on the East Coast, but I've been much more in the West. And you were recently at the Indoor AgCon in Las Vegas. I was indeed. Yes. Was that your first vertical farming conference or you've been to previous ones? No, I guess that was, yeah, that was the first one. Yeah, I haven't, okay. I'm speaking at the Rethink one in New York this summer. Is that the one in June? Yeah. Yeah. And then I spoke on a panel at Indoor AgCon in Las Vegas. And so I'm interested to kind of compare the two, you know, compare, contrast, see what, what they're like. But it's, it's interesting, you know, I work not just in vertical farming, but across all of produce and to just see that very specific group together and, and the need that they had to have, you know, their own conference. And, and I thought it was good. I thought, you know, there was, I got to talk to everyone I wanted to talk to. It's a nice small conference and people, you know, were available. So I, I thought it was a good conference. So a couple of questions about how you even got into produce itself. So is that something you envisioned you'd be working on when you got out of college? 
Well, yes, actually. It, it's kind of in a circle, but no, I've got my undergraduate degree in horticulture okay. from New Mexico State. And I, my first job was actually in a greenhouse. It was a 13-acre greenhouse, which was super state-of-the-art at the time. And I was managing a bunch of different flowering plants that we sold through retail. And what I learned about that really quickly is that it's really hard to live off that salary. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I, and so I wanted to leave New Mexico and, and go do something else. And so I moved to Los Angeles. I put everything that I owned in my pickup truck and drove to LA. It was a big adventure. I was, I think I was 22 and went to work for tree nursery and had to learn the lesson again, that even in LA, it's even worse. You can't live off that salary. So then I decided to go to graduate school and that kind of took a different turn. Yeah, prior to my current home, which is Minneapolis, I was four years in uh, LA. So I lived in Silver Lake. So very familiar. I do miss the, the mountains and the hiking. It's a bit flattery here. <laughs> <laughs> but I originally grew up in New York and there's some similar weather and also some mountains in, in the east as well. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like in the LA? Was that your first time there? Yeah, it was my first time there and it was um it was really exciting. I mean, I was I was there for a year and I felt like I had like all the LA experiences I needed to have. And it just kind of had to stop and say, what do I want to do with my life? And what am I good at? And at that age, you know, at 24, I decided I was really good at school so that I thought, okay, I need to, I need to figure out a way to make a little bit more money and uh, have a little bit more training. And so it was, it was a great year. I enjoyed living there, but it, it was definitely a year was enough at that point. <laughs> What did you, what was the plan? What were you, what would you go back to study? And then what was the idea of, of with that new degree? What, what were you going to be looking for? So I did a bunch of research and just trying to figure out, you know, what I was interested in and what was hot and, you know, what I could work in. And at the time, genetic engineering was becoming this really important thing that people were just starting to work on. And it looked like, you know, if you got a PhD in that, you know, you could get a pretty good job and get pretty good payment. But at that point, like I didn't even know anyone who went to graduate school. I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And, uh, <laughs> and Davis, and I wanted to stay in agriculture because I was really interested in both agriculture and biology. Those were kind of my two loves. And so, so uh, University of California, Davis had a really great program that I blindly applied to and got in. And once I got there, I kind of realized the real heavy duty genetic engineering piece of it were most of the people that were in grad school studying that were pre-med and it had a very different training and background as me and I was way over my head. And so I was going to have to either go back and get another undergraduate degree or shift to something a little less deeply technical, you know, with a different background. And so I moved over into plant pathology. Okay. And so I ended up getting my master's in plant pathology. For the benefit of the listener, can you explain what plant pathology, uh, what the study of that entails? Well, what's so funny is that, you know, everyone knows genetic engineering, but people don't yeah. know plant pathology. That's, that's kind of funny. No, it's the, it's the study of diseases of crops of plants. Okay. And so I had started in the PhD program and realized that most of the people who got PhDs it, see, this is what happens when you don't have a lot of mentors and you don't have a lot of people to talk to. You just start doing things and then you realize, well, that's not right. Okay, well, that's not right. And so so I started in the PhD program and most of the people who got PhDs at Davis went on into academia 
And the university at that time really liked to push people from their program into academic spots like at Cornell and, and different good institutions like that. And and I just realized I didn't love doing science. I love science and I love applying science. I love talking about science. I love seeing science solve problems. But to be in a lab or to teach just wasn't going to be something that I was going to be very good at or I was going to be very excited about. And so I stopped at a master's, which gave me a really great foundation of just science and scientific principles and agriculture and good connections. And so that turned out to be a really good place to stop and start looking at you know what's going on in the world. So looking at uh, some of the places you've had experience in, you've worked at uh, places like Monsanto, Syngenta, and DuPont, and you know, really big corporations. And I'm wondering, is there a common thread you can point to in terms of some of the lessons you were learning and some of the experiences you had in working in some of these places? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a, it's interesting because when you say that, you think, oh, those are really big companies and those were, you know, really organizations. Well-known names. At least. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But in all three of those companies, I worked in very early stage technologies, different parts of those companies that were just getting started. Monsanto, we had just bought a company here in California, and I worked in that company that was kept very separate from the rest of Monsanto. And at DuPont, I worked in a clean energy part of the business that was a brand new part of the business with a brand new technology that I commercialized in Syngenta. Same thing, it was a brand new part of the company. So the thread that I would tie through those, and and even when I was looking at going to work for those companies, I talk to a lot of people and talk to the people I was going to be working with and said, you know, I'm not going to be great in a really organized, process-oriented big company, but if you'll let me run, I can make some things happen here. And so I mostly worked in business development and looking for partnerships and commercializing new technologies. And how would you describe the lessons you learned and, and what, what you were able to specifically take away from them? Because you did some work in biofuels as well, right? Yeah, I did 10 years in clean tech. Well, clean tech is a whole nother can of worms of, yeah. of what I learned. But I think what I say, they're, they're all kind of different. I think looking, I think for big companies like that, being willing to let people try new things and let it fail and try different technologies and keep it a little bit separate from your ongoing revenue generating business is a really smart way to do it because I was able to, I could get deals done much more quickly because of the way we were structured. If I'd have been in the regular business, it would have been really hard for me to get some of the deals done that I did and and um, was just able to move a little more quickly with with less constraints, which worked well for me. Yeah. And then there's this, you did some consulting work coming out of that. Is that, is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of yeah. <laughs> at different points along the way. But the the last kind of consulting that, well, go back a little bit. I worked in, in clean uh, tech for about 10 years. And then I was working in developing second generation fuels. So that means use agricultural byproducts to make ethanol okay. and, and, and high grade chemicals. And so it was using a fermentation process of ag waste to make different products. And so I did that for about 10 years. And then if you remember the, the, everything changed, you know, fracking started, the cost of oil went way down. There wasn't the price of oil to really kind of prop up and continue those types of developments. And, and it's starting because the price of oil is going back up again, you know, some of this stuff is starting to resurface, which I knew it would, but that kind of ended. And I was working in that whole industrial biotech area, which was super exciting 
during the time I was in it. And then the fuels and chemical stuff kind of went away. And then it moved into fermentation a lot around different other types of things like cosmetics and foods and, and alternatives to meats. And so a, a lot of that direction in working in industrial biotech. But I decided I really wanted to get back into agriculture and work, you know, specifically in ag again. So I went to work for a company called Caribou Biosciences, and we had the UC Berkeley license to CRISPR-Cas9 technology. And so I was looking at how to apply that in agriculture. And while I was there, was looking at, you know, could we spin out a company that was specifically using gene editing to develop different kinds of crops? And what was your experience? I know working for companies is a bit different than starting your own and and having an entrepreneurial bent to what it is you do. Was that your first time doing your own thing? Well, we didn't end up spending it out. So I stayed at Caribou and spent a lot of time looking at how would we develop that? How would we build it? Who would we hire? What crops would we go after? And then the CEO and the board just decided that a better strategic direction would be to license that technology to, which is Corteva now at the time they were DuPont. And so we licensed the technology to them so that they took care of all that. And, and then I decided to leave because I could do business development and pharmaceuticals, but I wasn't really interested in doing that. So, so then that's, that's when I went into consulting from that time. But I think one of the things, you know, I was reflecting before our conversation this morning of, of kind of when I started thinking about vertical farming. And it was, it was while I was there at Caribou, I had, there's an organization called Singularity University. Do oh, you yeah. know them? Yeah. Uh, Rick, Rick Kurzweil? And uh, Pete. Don't know that. Yeah. That, it is Ray though. That's the. I think it is Ray. Yeah. yeah. The, the, so it's now, it's in Mountain View okay. and the guy that started the X prize and so they put it together and it's, they work, it's a leadership training university and they work with a lot of corporations and helping them think 10x and and just different ways of thinking and, yeah and moonshot doing projects yeah exactly yeah. so anyway they it was my first week at caribou and they asked me to come speak they had a very large corporate partner that was in the ag field and a lot of other fields as well and so they wanted you know they had all of their executives down here in Mountain View, and they wanted to bring in a, a bunch of different companies in the area to talk to them about, you know, what's new, what's exciting, what's really cool technology. And, and at the time, you know, CRISPR was just starting to be talked about as, as a great technology. So, so that was my first week at Caribou. I went in to, to speak to these this corporation that I knew from the past anyway. And then I was standing in the hall, and like you'd go in and you'd give your talk, and then you'd come out, and you couldn't stay in and you know, listen to the conversations you're coming in and out. So I was standing in the hall and there was this other guy kind of standing around. And, and, uh, so I, we started talking and, and it turned out it was Matt Bonnard from Plenty, the founder of Plenty. And so, and at the time it wasn't Plenty, it was CJ Farm. Okay. So this was 2016 and we started having this conversation and I'd never heard of vertical farms before. Yeah. And I was just so excited about his vision and the thought of using all this different technology to be able to grow indoors. Um, we had a really great conversation. So in part of my work with Caribou, when I was looking at spinning out this um, ag group, what I really wanted to focus on was what breeding could we do for vertical farms? You know, if you look at, if you're growing some 
something inside? Does the architecture of the plant need to be different? What are some of the traits you can work with? And so really thinking about breeding for vertical farms. So that was kind of 2016. So that was kind of the first time I started really thinking about it. And then when, I mean, just, just try to get us now to the present time, when did you start working with what is the, the uh, currently the International Fresh Produce Association, which like you said, was a result of a, of a merger? So that I'd been there for three and a half years. So it was, okay. it was October or whatever that year was. So three and a half years ago. And how did you make the jump to that? Is that something they, they recruited you or it's something that, that had been on your radar and, and something you wanted to make the move into? Had not been on my radar at all. Had not, you know, never had, have I done much work with associations. And so after I left Caribou, I did a lot of consulting, actually consulted for plenty for about a year and did a lot of work and looking at using CRISPR and different breeding technologies. And so one of my clients that I worked with and just helping them think about their molecular breeding program was Sunworld, okay. which is a, a large table grape company. And the man who I worked with, David Margulis, was the chairman of the board of what was then the Produce Marketing Association. And so he called me and said, and I'd been working with him for a while and it was a great relationship. And and he said, you know, we're looking at developing this brand new role called vice president of technology. And I think you'd be a really good fit. Are you interested? And so I said, well, I'll I'll talk to them. And it turned out that the guy that I was going to be working for, who's since retired, but the guy that I was going to be working for, I had worked with at my very first company out of graduate school in New Jersey. Um, and then there was another guy they were hiring that was also at that same company. It was DNA Plant Technologies. It was a very, one of the very early biotech companies in plants. And so it was, it was you know, kind of a full circle thing. And so <laughs> I wasn't really sure. You know, I, I, my biggest concern was, you know, I, at this stage in my career, I really want to make an impact. I want to be able to, to do things that, you know, change the way that we grow food and make food more healthy for people and for the planet. And, you know, very interested in making that impact. And I, I wasn't sure how I could do that from an association. So that was my biggest concern of, of just trying to, to figure that out. And uh, so I talked to them, talked to the CEO, Kathy Burns, for a long time and listened to her vision, a very big vision. And after we talked, I think for about three months or so, and I decided, okay, this is, you know, and I think one can make an impact anywhere. You know, if you're a person who's really driven to make an impact, you can do it from almost anywhere. And so I just kind of had to get myself situated around, you know, how do I do it from here? Why is making an impact? Why is that important to you? I think, especially at this time, I mean, I've always been driven by that. But I think especially at this time, you know, looking at some of the scary macro drivers around supply chain and and climate change and some of the other issues that we're facing and looking at you know human health and how people need to eat i just feel like a lot of that can we can have a big impact on that on how we grow our food and what food we grow and what food people eat and so you know i feel like i've spent my whole career working on that and communicating about that and developing technology for it and so it's just that's just what drives me, you know, to get up and do work every day. If I was to have a conversation with any of your childhood or, or college friends, would they be surprised at where you ended up? College? No. Childhood? <laughs> I don't know. I, I was pretty shy. 
okay. shockingly enough. But <laughs> my dad was in the Air Force and we moved around a lot. Oh, and yeah. so I was, okay. you know, constantly kind of responding to, oh, the new kid again. Oh, the new kid again. So, but I always, you know, I always did really well in school. I think I always, you know, really loved biology. And so if anyone was paying attention to that, <laughs> they may not be surprised. You mentioned not having mentors early on as you were progressing through your career. Were you able to build some of those relationships with mentors as you started working for these other companies? Somewhat. I think it's um, it's always been kind of a struggle, which is, you know, I don't want to get into the, a long gender conversation, but I just think I, I was always working in, in organizations that I was the only woman. And it was just... I think people felt uncomfortable mentoring me. I think it was just kind of a weird time. And I think I searched for mentors outside of my work, you know, of outside of my roles or, you know, my job responsibilities, but, you know, finding people in the industry who were interested and willing to talk to me and teach me the things that I felt like I needed to learn. Yeah. I mean, talk about work being in a male dominated industry in vertical farming. Mm -hmm. You know, something that was really apparent to me as I was having my first couple of seasons of interviews and I just looking at past guests and, you know, not to detract from those amazing conversations, but I was like, I need to just go out of my way to kind of find more women and find more people of color, like who are, who are making inroads in, in here. And it's been interesting. And I've had since you know, had some great conversations with folks like Nona Yahia from uh, Vertical Farming, uh, Vertical for Harvest. And it's been, I think there's probably an opportunity. I would say definitely an opportunity for as more people of color, as more women enter the field, you know, to be that leader, to be that role model, to be that mentor, to demonstrate and show that there are opportunities that exist in this growing industry. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I go way out of my way to work with, there's a number of women I work with that, and I'm always seeking out, you know, women to, to help in any way that I can. And it's, the challenges are different than when I was, you know, coming up through mid-career, but there's still challenges. And I think it just is helpful to have people to talk to. But one thing I would say, just a, a plug on some of the work I'm doing currently. Yeah. So I just started this accelerator and what it's not an accelerator in the typical sense where we're not taking any equity. We're not, there's no big prize. There's no pitch day. But what we're trying to do is bring in technology from either different industries or from different countries into the produce industry. And so we put out a call for different companies and, and what kind of quickly, what the program is, is there's an immersion week where we'll, we'll do a week in California, just going all over the state and seeing like all the amazing companies that are here to see. And then there'll be a bunch of webinars that'll last for like five months, twice a month. And then my organization, IFPFA has a big global show that usually has like 20,000 people in October. And the people in this program will be able to go and exhibit at that show and get introduced around. So it it really is an immersion into the industry and really help people see what the produce industry is, get a lot of information. Because a lot of people that develop technology for agriculture go straight into corn and soy. And I really want to divert it into to produce. So as that is a backdrop, I just... We just are starting to tell people whether they got into the program or not okay. today. Um, oh, and great. how many applicants did you get? We got fifty, which oh, I was great. really pleased that's with. Nice. You know, yeah. and given that it's the first year, and a lot of people didn't even know of the organization or they didn't know me. But one of the things that I wanted to say about that is that I felt really strongly about 
this being a very diverse group because I've been in these kind of programs before where we're selecting companies and it's all white males, you know? And so I was really, I felt really strongly about that. This is going to be a diverse group. If I have to go out and handpick people, this is going to be a diverse group. So the first wave came in. I didn't pay that much attention to, you know, the diversity of the group. And then, then we, we took it down to 15 people and then I put a column for, you know, gender and other diversity. And because I was going to count it, it's like, if we don't have at least three women in this cohort, <laughs> I'm going to go out and find them. Yeah. And so it ends up that we have, and it's not completely final yet, but it we have over half are women. That's great. And we have at least a third that are not white males. I think we have one white male, you know, it's a lot of diversity. So, so the one thing I would say about this is that part of it is that I worked with two women who were helping me get the word out about this open gate partners. And so is two women working with me and me, and I think we just have a different Rolodex. And so I think the, the difference is that, you know, the world that you live in, that's who you're connected to. And so I think that's Richard. a lot of the problem yeah. that you were saying is that you've got, you know, a lot of situations where it's all men and it continues being all men because all men know all men. And so I think when you open it up and you have three women going out and saying, join this program, you're going to get more women. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Is there anything you can speak to in terms of like some of the technologies or some of the innovations or some of the ideas that were came up as a result of the submissions or, or is this something that gets fleshed out as the program continues? Yeah, I, I can talk vaguely. I mean, they haven't, a lot of the people haven't said yes for sure yet. So, okay. <laughs> but yeah, we yeah. have like, we have one vertical farming company, which I'm very excited about. We have a company that has like a traceability type of technology that's helping track produce and where it moves. We have, who else do we have? A number of like crop protection type products, you know, either using pheromones, we have a robotics company. So they're just all over the place. We have all different kinds of companies that, you know, are coming in with different types of technologies, um, both hardware, software, automation, biology, you know, food safety across the whole thing. So I'm, I'm really excited about the program. And the pheromones, is that just for specific attract and, and repel, repel like certain kinds of bugs that <laughs> could either benefit or, or harm the plant, the produce? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it helps to get, helps to get rid of them, helps to find them, trap them, get rid of them. I find that fascinating. When I was at Indiragcon, there was a booth of, of a company, I, I, the name escapes me right now, but they had like really like specific species of, you know, gnat size or even smaller <laughs> bugs and th with a specific purpose to like kill or eat another bug and then at, at some point they would die and i just thought like the precision with which you can do things like that is, is really fascinating yeah it's pretty because you know, yeah it's pretty cool cool stuff yeah i my um i had a summer job in my undergraduate where we were looking for parasitic hymenoptera so that's like little bee fly species that wow. eat other you know bugs that's a mouthful <laughs> yeah. And so we would go out with these big nets in the alfalfa fields and just do big net swoops of all the bugs. And then we'd have to sit with a microscope and count the veins in their wow. wings to identify what they are. Count so, the veins in the wings? Yeah. Under a microscope, because we were trying to figure out like which ones were the ones that were parasitic and which ones were, you know, the what was the good ones, what was the bad ones, and how do you kind of keep them and, and use them as pest control? Not a job I would recommend. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think of activities that you can do while listening to podcasts because I'm coming from the world of podcasts. That's, that definitely would fall into that category. So I'm curious, you know, with all the experience you had as you entered and started working with the Produce Market Association, which is now the International Fresh Produce Association, were there some learnings there in, in terms of things you on the job training or, or things you hadn't been introduced to before that, that you sort of had to get up to speed on? Well, I think association work is very different than a company because your products are different, your customers are different. You know, you still like the association, we sell memberships and we sell all different kinds of services and things, but it's but it's very different than working for a company where you're trying to get a product out the door and you're working with customers in a different way. So I think that took me a while to kind of learn how to do and then it it's very much in some companies, I know it's a very service mentality, but a lot of companies, especially depending on your role, you're kind of far away from the customer. But in association work, I mean, it really is a service model. Like we exist to serve the members. And so it's a very different way of, of interacting and, and how you work with people and how you think about what your job is. And was this a, a merger of between... Um... I just want to make sure I don't butcher the two names from the pro, the PMA and then the international organization to just, you know, with the idea being like the, the sum would be greater than the, the two individual. So it was a merger between two organizations that have had been out there for years. PMA was around for 70 years. United Fresh is the other organization. Okay. So it was United Fresh and, and PMA that merged together and formed the International Fresh Produce Association that kicked off as an organization January 1st this year. And very... I haven't been in this world for a long time, so I don't know all the history, but I think it was tried a couple of other times to put these two together because a lot of people in the produce industry were members of both organizations and it, it oh, kind of okay. makes sense, you know. Yeah, yeah. But now just the stars aligned and the two organizations came together and and United Fresh is very strong in food safety and advocacy. And so and we PMA was not as strong in that. We're a global organization. They were just a US organization. There was no one in my role there. So it's it was just a it's been a really good merger of bringing in with not a lot of overlap. And can you talk a little bit about how your role changed from a focus on technology to specifically one on innovation? It didn't really change. I just thought that one of the biggest problems was I get all the emails for people who are trying to sell IT systems. Okay. <laughs> and so that's when people outside of that my world yeah. think about technology, they think about IT. And so I was tired of getting those emails. But, and really what I do is more around innovation, you know, than it is just around the technology piece of it, which is, you know, more about what are technologies that we can implement, commercialize, bring into the industry to solve problems? So that made more sense to me than, than just focusing on the technology itself. It's more like, how do, how do we use this to solve the giant problems that we have? How did you start to see the transition? Or they may have been there when you arrived, but or interest and you know either attracting or recruiting folks from the vertical farming world? Like How did that start to happen? Because obviously you said you were, you were having those discussions in 2016, and joined in, in 2018, and obviously till, to the point now where you're attending <laughs> indoor icon conferences. And I'm curious what you were seeing in your time there. Was there just a growing interest or an awareness that this is an aspect of the Produce Association members that you need to be start paying attention to? Well, I think at first it was interesting. If you remember in the beginning, you know, probably like 2018 or so, a lot of the indoor farm 
people who are really strong in indoor farm felt like they needed to say really negative things about outdoor growing. And I think it was just a stage everyone had to go through, but they weren't that interested in working with us. And because of all the negative things they were saying about outdoor growers, we were less interested in working with them. And so I think at the very beginning, there was this kind of split, like, you know, and then we started, um, you know, I had, Aero Farms has always been pretty involved with PMA, and and uh, so they were ones that kind of came in, and and I and that makes sense because I think Aero Farms more than some of the other companies came from people who were growers or who understood agriculture, and so it would make sense that they would think of it more as a as agriculture and growing, whereas a lot of the other indoor farms thought of it as technology. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense that that's what happened, but but I think as time has moved on, I think people see that it's not this hugely different world. Like we're all growing food for people. And if consumers don't want what you grow and if retailers won't sell what you grow, it doesn't matter how you grew it, you know? And so I think it's, it, that's started coming together more. And so we certainly at IFPA and, and a lot, just my background from knowing a lot of these different companies, we're starting to be a lot more active in what can we do? You know, are there specific things we need to do to service that part of the industry? In the end, they all need to sell through someone, you know, even if they're, unless they're going to put out a stand in front of their company, you know, they're going to, you know, it may be Amazon, it may be whoever, but you're going to, someone else is going to, you know, sell your product. And so we're a conduit to that. We can help with that. And so I think, and we understand what consumers are looking for. And so I think that's a lot of kind of what it's come down to is like what you're all going to have to sell something. And, but, but I am thinking a lot about what can I do, you know, from a technology and an innovation point of view, what can I do to help that part of the industry? And, and some of the, some of the early stage issues are different. What were some of your big takeaways? Was there anything when you attended the conference that, that you were surprised by, or that piqued your interest that you you realized you're going to have some homework when you get back and do some more research into? I think one of the things that I've been thinking about and I noticed there as well was just a lot of the big companies, you know, like AeroFarms and, and Plenty and that first group developed their own technology because they had to, because there were no vendors. And so they spent a lot of money, spent a lot of time developing their own technologies, their own way of doing things. And that's kind of their point of difference. But, you know, just walking around that exhibition floor that you were talking about, you know, you, you see all the different types of companies that now have services, either lights or recipes or software or robotics, or there's starting to be this whole service industry to that industry. And so I think that's something that is really interesting. And I'm wondering where that's going and, you know, just paying more attention to that, you know, who are those companies that are kind of, it's the picks and shovels types of of the industry, you know, like, how is how is that developing? And then the other thing I'm noticing more is, you know, companies like IGS, who I know have been on your podcast, like that type of model, the actual production of food is the least, you make the least amount of margin there. You make more margin in other parts of the whole chain. And so I think a lot of people are starting to realize that and are like, okay, we're not, 
we may not want to be the producers of food. We maybe want to supply those people. And so I think people like IGS and these different business models of how can we supply the industry and allow more people to grow where we're not the grower. And so kind of seeing those trends start to happen more and, you know, that we don't have an answer like where that's going to go yet. But I think that those were some really interesting things. And then one more thing, the panel that I led was talking about how to, once you've produced a product, how do you sell it to retailers? And we had a, it was on the exhibition floor and tons of people came in and I, I got a sense from a lot of people there that, that had just started either setting up or wanted to grow that they hadn't thought about who they were going to sell to. And that's so that, that's an issue. Yeah. So that's really important. <laughs> and so was there any takeaways for you with the association? I, I would imagine there's some people who may or may not have been aware of the association and, and would be interested in maybe asking you questions about the benefits of joining? Didn't get that too much. I got, I was in a, one of the sessions and there was a number of people that I had worked with were in the session and they mentioned me a couple of times just in the room, which was great. And I did have a couple of people come up to me and, and ask me, that's right. I did actually have a couple of people come up and just ask about the association. And, you know, I think that whole area, you know, like I said, at the onset or is trying to kind of figure out, you know, do we need to be our own small group? Can we be our own small group inside a bigger group? But, you know, the reasons you have associations is is to do things that one company can't do and to have a, a bigger voice, you know, and to learn about what's going on when you don't have time to pay attention to everything and sort through. And so that's the reason to be part of an association. So does, are the are the needs of the indoor community so specific that they need to have a lot of their own associations or is there something they can do within ours where we can help? And I think both is probably true. I think there are some things specific. So, so I think those, those types of conversations are going on. And is the association organized in a way where there's a specific focus on what's happening in, in vertical farming or, or do you sort of like treat all, all members equally? You know, there's different areas. We have like grower shippers that have different parts of the association. We have retailers that are different parts. We have supply chain. We have people who are really interested in sustainability. You know, we have, we have different councils where people get together and, and work on their specific issues. So we really do try to hit all the different areas. I'm curious if you were to wave the proverbial magic wand and we were having this conversation 12 months from now as the VP of innovation, what do you think would you would like to have happened for you to be happy with like your progress? I think certainly looking at having a specific group within the association that's focused on, and I would open it up and and maybe include some of the greenhouse growers, you know? Um, so I'd put like protected agriculture, you know, kind of put it together and, you know, a more specific group, like a committee or a council or something that that those people had a place to get together and that we could advocate for them. So I think that's one way. I think just having people in that part of the industry, you know, more active in the association so we can hear their voice and hear, you know, what, what are issues to them. And do you feel because of the connections you've made with your attendance at some of the upcoming conferences that uh, the association will start to get more visibility? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the point besides yeah. me learning, you know, a lot of yeah. it is me learning and, and meeting people and understanding, you know, what the needs are out there and, and how I can, 
how I can help with those needs. And, you know, I've done a lot with the podcast that I have as well. It's a broader produce podcast that looks at technology across a, a lot of different issues. But we did a whole season on indoor ag and had some really great, interesting conversations. And I have a season coming, my season that's coming up in May is talking about organic and regenerative and then indoor ag. And so when you look at those three ways of growing, you know, say you've got leafy greens and you've got a leafy green case and you've got conventional grown leafy greens in a plastic container and you've got um, organic and you've got, I don't think there's any that are labeled regenerative, but you know, you've got indoor ag. So you've got those three anyway, like are those three categories going to stay there? What does a consumer think when they see those three categories? And yeah, good point. are some people, you know, I've heard some retailers say that consumers are really more interested in local than they are organic. And so you may have some consumers and some retailers that start saying, you know, organic you're off the shelf and we want to buy from, you know, our local vertical farm and have their name up there. And so I'm going to do a whole season talking to different pieces and different parts of that and you know really have the conversation of vertical farms and here like this is great stuff this is all that we're doing how are we communicating it what do consumers think when they hear it and so so i think part of my job is just to you know shine a light on on those issues within the context of produce you know in a bigger scheme it's important to you know sort of dive deep on this idea of clarifying for the consumer what they think what their perspectives is because at the end of the day perception is reality right and even a word like local does local mean the farm that's, you know, 20 miles away or the or the indoor shipping container that's like a block away? Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> those are both local and those are, and arguably like the, the vertical farm is fresher because it'll be there, you know, within a day. And so I think educating the consumer as, as to the benefit. And at the end of the day, like taste, price, all these things come into play when you when you factor those in. But I think anything that, that can happen to educate folks on it i sort of like the more the merrier because i think there's a lot of questions being asked and, and at the end of the day there's also limited shelf space in the in places where people are going to want to sell this and so you know is it, is it the case that the company with the best marketing gets the space and maybe is, is the further away than the company that's local but just can't get on the shelves and, and what, what can they do to sort of have some parity in terms of you know that that competition that's going to happen yeah, I think that those are all really interesting issues. And I don't even know, I mean, I'm too close to it. But, yeah. you know, I look at friends of mine, you know, and even my husband, the way that he shops, you know, it's like, what do you pay attention to, you know, <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, we're going to start seeing things like climate safe, we're gonna, you know, we're going to see regenerative, like, what is the consumer? What do they make of that? And and what's the retailer's role in trying to communicate? You know, whose role is it to try to communicate these different attributes? And I think organic it stands to lose the most because it's such a set of rules, and you know, it takes three years to certify. And if you don't get that higher price point, you know, you you can't really afford to grow organic. But and there's a, a yield. There's twenty six percent less yield if you grow organic, because you can't use a lot of the different inputs. And so, so how is that, you know, how are they going to talk about the differences? And um, it's just, I think it's a really interesting time and a really interesting topic of, you know, who wants what and who buys what and what it sells for and all those things. I mean, it's interesting as you were talking about that, the, the two things that pop to me that come to mind, being a child of the 80s, in terms of industry taglines is beef it's what's for dinner and milk it does the body good right yeah exactly <laughs> you're like you're just this is stuff was like ingrained in you and i'm and i'm wondering if there's opportunities you know as 
all these industries mature and as these newer industries mature, you know, to, to, to do some of that. Cause at the end of the day, some of that does come back to like, yeah, mark, really right? your association at work right there in your brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, when you read a lot of the research, there's a ton of research that's been done on trying to get people to eat more fruits and vegetables and eat more healthy. And the, it's hard. It's really hard. You know, I think it's continued. People are, you know, eat less fruits and vegetables. And so I think that in itself is something, you know, and, and as we talked earlier on this difference between indoor and outdoor, we just need to make the pie bigger. We just need people to eat more vegetables. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And I think that's, that's a lot of what we can do is, you know, help educate and, and help, um, just get people to, um, have a healthier diet for all sorts of reasons. What's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? Oh, interesting. I think, you know, these aren't, this isn't a huge question, but just, the, you know, in the last week, I've been going through these applications for the accelerator and just thinking about the purpose of the accelerator is to bring technology that's kind of farm ready or ready to go out into the industry right away. And so a lot of the companies that I had to turn down that have really exciting technologies and, and just thinking about, what does that mean? And how do we get those technologies in? And especially things around biological solutions, which is kind of my background and what I'm most interested in. So things like breeding and things like different types of biologicals and, you know, soil microbiome solutions and things like that, that take a lot longer. So I, those, you know, if I look at, okay, I want products in the industry next year out of this accelerator, those need more time. And so how do we, how do we support those companies and how do we make sure that those technologies get developed and commercialized? Makes a lot of sense. So just in closing, what has you most excited as you look forward, you know, in terms of either the association's roadmap or, or things that are top of mind for you? I think the biggest thing is, as we were talking earlier about making an impact, I think, you know, especially with climate change and, and some of the health issues that the way we grow our food and the food we grow is so important right now. And so I just feel like we're at this amazing time of on one side, we've got all these different technologies that we can bring in that can be a solution to these huge problems that we're facing as a world. And so just getting to work at that nexus and, and that communication between those technologies and how we apply them, you know, for people to be healthier and have a healthier planet is just, you know, super exciting. Very good. What's the link for the, uh, the, the program? The, is it an incubator program? Or I, I think you said it's closed right now, but in case people want to learn more about it. Yeah, if you go to freshproduce.com, that's our website. And if you go to, there's a technology link. Okay. And at that technology link, you'll see all the podcasts that I'm doing and you'll see the accelerator. Right now, I don't know that there's much on the accelerator because we ha we haven't announced who's in it yet. And but we'll announce the mentors. We have an amazing set of mentors, and then we'll announce the okay. the companies. And we're doing our immersion week is May 9th, so pretty quick. So it will I'll be doing a lot on I post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn and and a bit on Twitter. And so you'll be able to see a lot of great footage, video footage of all the different places that we're going to in California and what we're learning as a group. That's exciting. <laughs> So we'll have a link to Fresh Produce in the show notes and then for people to want to connect with you directly. LinkedIn is a great place. I, I spend a lot of time there. Yeah. <laughs> it's my we'll second sure. home. <laughs> for, for better or for worse. We'll, exactly. We'll be sure to include uh, all those links in the show notes. So Vani, thank you so much. I appreciate Was it John that introduced us? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's John Purcell. Yeah. John Purcell. Uh, shout out to John, who 
just had a great conversation with him a couple of weeks ago, and that'll be in season five as well. So really excited. And uh, hopefully we'll get to connect at an upcoming indoor ag conference as well. Yeah, New York in June. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for folks, there's still tickets available for that. So I'll make sure that as the, the publication of this episode, I think there'll still be time to purchase tickets. So hopefully we can, the listeners can uh, connect with you there as well. Great. Thanks again, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks again to Bonnie for coming on the show and sharing her story. Always appreciate when my guests take an hour out of their day and spend it with me and with you, the listener. I really appreciate it. Special thanks to our Season 5 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking to a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is still free because they still work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. If you want to learn more about how a podcast can be beneficial for your brand, head on over to fullcast.co. As a reminder, if you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. As you heard at the top of the episode, I'll be sure to read those out and I get a lot of joy out of doing that. So make sure you make my day and you make your day because you're doing a good deed. (laughs) So make sure you leave that review if you haven't done so already. Tune in next week for my conversation, long-awaited conversation with Viraj Puri. CEO of Gotham Greens, who I did connect with at Indoor Econ, and we were finally able to make the times work to have him on the show. So that's going to be a really good one. Stay tuned for that. Until we meet again next episode, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.